most of you know, we have various focus areas here at St. Andrews uh, for our global missions. One of our focus areas is England, and we really got interested in England uh, back in 06 when we moved over here. Uh, I was the pastoral associate for England for Mission to the World. Now, what that means is that Connie and I went to England every year, and we would meet with our various Mission of the World uh, missionaries and church planters and uh, those uh, working uh, with us as partners uh, as a denomination over there. So we would go over there, and uh, it, of course it was uh, to be with the people, but inevitably when we would go and, and visit, uh, they'd take us to something in their town. Now, over in England, if you go to something in their town, it's probably going to be an old something. Uh, a lot of old churches over there, and uh, sadly, one of the reasons we're there is because they, aren't, they don't have people in them. But one of the things that I, I noticed there is that in, uh, you would see in a lot of the old churches on the walls, you would see tapestries, and they were beautiful. They were amazing. Uh, now... They were there for decoration, but also, we were told, for insulation uh, for those cold buildings. Now, if you were to go and you walk over to the wall to the tapestry, and if somehow you could get behind it. Now, if you're ever over there, I'll just tell you they frown on that. Don't touch the tapestry, all right? But if you could get behind the tapestry, what you would see would be kind of a mess of threads. It wouldn't make any sense. They'd, you know, they'd be going across each other, and you wouldn't be able to see any kind of a picture or design or anything that made any sense. But then if you walk around and you see the same tapestry from the other side, what you see is a beautiful design, a picture, something that, that communicates something. Now, I think in a sense, global missions in some churches can be like the backside of that tapestry. When you're trying to figure out where, where does local mission, where does our national missions and, and uh, international missions, where, where really are we talking about in, in terms of uh, what is global missions? And so what I want to do today is to walk us around to the other side and for us to see the tapestry of how all of those fit together. I don't know if there's a better place in the Scripture than to go to uh, the last words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven and in the first chapter of Acts where it says in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, from that verse, our mission team has picked a theme for this year. Across the street, across the country, and across the world. It's from that verse because across the street is the Jerusalem part. Across the country would be Judea and Samaria and across the world 
is just that, to the ends of the earth. The first thing that I want you to get out of your mind, though, is that we are having three messages today, or that these talks will somehow compete with one another for your activity, your money, your passion, your prayer. If you leave here today and you feel that way, you feel torn, then we haven't communicated the beauty of that tapestry of global missions. Here's the bottom line. Because God has called us to global missions, we as a church should go and give and and pray across the street, across the country, and across the world. So global missions, unlike some people have in their mind, global missions does not begin when you cross the ocean. Global missions begins where your skin ends, just outside of yourself. You get it? To be obedient to the Great Commission in Matthew and here in the book of Acts, our view of mission cannot stop at our country or our state line or our city, but must expand across the globe. Now, here's how they fit. To be sustained, our world missions need a strong local focus. To be valid, our local focus must have a national and global component. If it doesn't, then we are preaching some kind of a truncated gospel. If all we can see is our needs right here, then we are missing a great portion of the heart of what God says global missions is in the scripture. Let me get real specific. We are, in the next couple of years, we are sending people on trips to various places. That includes Spain, Chattanooga, West Virginia, New York City, Bulgaria, and Haiti. Here's how specific I want to get. Going to Spain is not better than Chattanooga. Going to Chattanooga is not better than West Virginia. Going to West Virginia is not better than New York City. New York City is not better than Bulgaria. Bulgaria is not better than Haiti. Haiti's not better than Spain. And then you start the circle all over again. Do you get it? They are equal callings. And the reason they are equal callings is because there are lost people in all of those places. And their horrifying destiny as lost people is the same, whether they are across the street or across the globe. And we are to be about concern for them and ministry to them. Now let me continue to weave the tapestry. We have a ministry literally across the street from the church. 
which is the Crossroads Middle, middle School. Uh, we do school time Bible. Some of you are very familiar with it. It's a brand new concept to some of you. Every year, students are permitted by law, they are permitted to sign up for an elective in Bible. And uh, it, it, the, the Bible elective just has to be off campus. And by the way, you can pray about this because uh, Monday and Tuesday night of this week, uh, the rising sixth graders are signing up for next fall. And so pray that God will bring many to sign up. Every year we have 80, 90, sometimes more students that sign up and we go across the street and we walk them across the street, stopping traffic and so on, and they come up to our classrooms and we teach them the gospel. We teach them the, the glorious plan of redemption from Genesis to Revelation with a focus upon Christ. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing in our day that we can still do that. And every year, we have professions of faith and recommitments. And we believe we're touching families. There are people in our church today because of this. That's not the, the goal, though. It's a kingdom project. Now, in addition to that with Crossroads, we also do snack packs. And, and those are uh, where we gather food and we, we put together these packs for students that have been designated by the social worker uh, as uh, he or she believes that those, that student would not have food over the weekend if somebody doesn't give it to them, and so we give them food for the weekend. We do that every week. We're around 40 right now. Sometimes it's more, sometimes a little bit less. In addition to that, we have people that are uh, mentors over at Crossroads where they are a loving, safe ear to a, a, a child over there, many of them that are going through very difficult things, and they have an opportunity to be an influence in their life. It's our goal to continue building bridges literally across the street. But we also in our community work with the grieving we also in our community work with the poor in, uh, through sharing God's love, with the sick and the least through Happy Wheels. We validate our national and world missions with our local missions. We support our national and world missions with our local ministries. The stronger we are as a church here, the more we can support national and world missions. Now, David Platt, uh, who is really actually answering the objection where some people say, well, we should just be in our community because there's, there's needs right there. We don't need to be going overseas. He says, and he's answering that objection, but by answering it, I believe he speaks to the local issues as well. He says, that's just a smokescreen for most people. Because most people who say, no, no, we don't need to be going overseas. We, need, we, we have too many needs right here. He said most of them aren't involved at all right here. They're not sharing the gospel. They're not helping the poor. They're not uh, reaching out to others. He says Christians rarely share the gospel. Most Christian schedules are not heavily weighted to feeding the hungry and helping the sick and strengthening the church in the neediest places in our country. 
In other words, he, he's saying that's just a cover-up for, in many cases, just a hard heart. Now, here's the thing. We need to cope with that. We need to ask ourselves that. Is that if we have a problem with global missions, world missions, overseas, or national missions, or local missions, if we have a problem in that area, it's a heart issue. That's, that's where the issue is inside of me. Because as we said, there, there's, there's no difference between them in terms of the needs of the lost. Nobody's ever been more concerned for the nations than the Apostle Paul. In fact, he said, he said this, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. In other words, anywhere Christ is not known, that's where I want to preach the gospel. But that same Apostle Paul, I believe, understood the tapestry because he had a deep, deep concern for his own people, the Jewish people. This is what he said. I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So his, his missionary zeal and his concern for his own nation were one in the same passion. That's the tapestry. Anyone that wants to debate over global versus local is pr pr presenting a false dichotomy. It's not either or, but both and. And in the case of our theme for the year, it's all of the above. That's the tapestry of global missions that is beautifully woven together. Now, I've spoken about heart issues. Let me encourage you to take your worship guide. And if you see there, there is a confession of sin. All of us at times, if we are a child of Adam and everyone in this room is, all of us at times and to different degrees have experienced some portion of hardness of heart. So let me ask you, along with me, to read this confession of sin. Great God of compassion, you asked for my hands that you might use them for your purpose. I gave them for a moment, then withdrew them, for the work was hard. You asked for my mouth to speak out against injustice. I gave you a whisper, not be accused. You asked for my eyes to see the pain of poverty. I closed them, for I did not want to see. You asked for my life, that you might work through me. I gave a small part, that I might not get too involved. Lord, forgive my calculated efforts to serve you, only when it is convenient for me to do so, only in those places where it is safe to do so, and only with those to make it easy to do so. Father, forgive me. Renew me. Send me out as a usable instrument that I might take seriously the meaning of your cross. Amen. And then hear these words 
from the Word of God, these words of encouragement. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Thanks be to God. If someone were to ask me uh, about my childhood, particularly about my adolescent years, and if they were to ask me about my family, like maybe even specifically about my parents, if they were to ask me to describe them, uh, to give a snapshot or to sort of encapsulate them in some, in some sort of manner, my first thought would not be to describe them by their vocation. Um, I wouldn't think, especially looking back, to describe my dad as an electrical contractor. And I wouldn't think, if you asked me about my mom, to describe her as a stay-at-home mom, even though that is exactly what they did with the majority of their time. And that's basically the answer that the world would expect. Tell me about your parents. Well, this is my, what my dad did. This is what my mom did. And, and what else do you need to know? We've, we've sort of devolved as a people, as a culture, into a, a state your name and occupation, and that is who you are. Uh, but that's not what first comes to my mind when someone asks about me. Growing up, uh, I felt then, and I feel the same way now, that I was a child of youth workers. That's what they did. That's how I remember them. They were youth workers. They served in the youth ministry here at this church. Uh, they taught Sunday school. They taught Wednesday night classes. They went on mission journeys and had the youth into their home. Lock-ins weren't really their thing. Uh, if you know John Williams, he goes to bed at 9 o'clock every night. So a, so a lock-in doesn't really work with his schedule. But he would just go to bed and people would stay there and hang out in the house. They were youth workers. That's what they did. And so as a child of youth workers, as a son uh, who watched his parents, who observed what they were passionate about, what they had put their energy into, I was blessed from a very early age to participate in global missions. I was I was in it, really, before I even understood it um, from a very early age. I was challenged. I was challenged to think about what it means to go on missions. What, what does that even look like? We talk about it a lot. Uh, we, we preach about it a lot. Go on missions. Go do. Go be the hands and feet of Christ. What does that even look like for me? I'd heard about it. I'd heard about it so much. So even as a child, I was forced to to consider my place, uh, to wrestle with my understanding of my place within this tapestry of God's, of God's plan and, and the progress of his redemptive purpose, of God redeeming people unto himself for his own glory. It was a challenge, and I was forced. I was forced to, to really come face to face with the reality that as a follower of Christ, even as a child, even as a child, there is no higher calling there's no greater use of time, of money, of energy than the ministry of the gospel, both in word and deed, uh, through global missions. And seeing that demonstrated, seeing it spoke volumes to me. And I remember feeling, feeling very small. It wasn't a feeling of insignificance. And it, really, it wasn't really even a feeling of inadequacy. It was just a sense that my life, that, that my view of my life, my church, uh, my little world, 
in comparison to God's plan, God's people, and God's purpose was just too small. It was too narrow, too limited. In Acts 1.8, you've already heard it. In Acts 1.8 we read, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In, in this verse we see a couple of promises. Uh, the first is that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus had already promised his disciples uh, that the Holy Spirit was coming to them. And John 16, right in the upper room, just prior to his time in the garden, prior to his arrest, prior to his mockery of a trial, and ultimately prior to his, prior to his crucifixion, Jesus had promised them that the helper would come. Jesus had said that it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. And so now, at his ascension, at this point in Acts 1, at his ascension, at this moment of human history, Jesus affirms this. He is reaffirming what he has already said. The Holy Spirit is coming. The promised Spirit is coming. And when the Spirit comes, you are going to receive power. And just to be, just to be straight, that, that word can be hijacked if we're not careful. This isn't political power that we're talking about here. Uh, this is not social power. It's not any sort of worldly power. It's this, it's this miraculous power. It's supernatural. It's otherworldly. That's the type of power that Jesus is talking about. Forget your status in the world. Forget your prestige. Forget your position, your title. The power that comes through the Holy Spirit isn't like that. It's not a power for you. It's a power moving through you. And there's a big difference. It's not of this world. The second promise that we see is that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will be, you will be my witnesses. I've always loved this proclamation of the Great Commission. Uh, this, is a, this is a statement of fact. It's Jesus in this moment saying this is going to happen. No option. And it's a promise that springs forth out of the reality that we are all witnesses to something already. Every one of us. Every single person in here is already a witness to something. Maybe it's your school. Maybe it's your, maybe it's your team. Maybe it's your kids. Your job. Maybe it's your neighborhood. Maybe it's even your church. But as a new creation in Christ Jesus... The old having passed away, the new having come, we're now free from that. And we're now witnesses to grace. Witnesses to mercy, witnesses to redemption, uh, to freedom. Okay, witnesses to salvation. We're witnesses to Christ. This is our identity in Him. As God's people, as sons of Abraham, as those redeemed by the blood of Christ and children of the covenant promises, we're no longer dead in our sins. I'm let me make this personal. I'm no longer dead in my sins. I'm no longer dead in my trespasses. Because God being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved me has made me alive together with Christ. Do you understand that? Do you walk in the light of that? Do you stand on the promise, on the hope of Christ? It's this inexpressible gift that motivates God's people to be about God's mission 
to be for his purpose. It's the same calling. It's the same exact mission that God's people have had for all time. Even in Isaiah 43, we see God saying through the prophet, I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you and you are my witnesses. I declared, I proclaimed, I saved, and you are my witnesses. By the way, those strange gods, we have some of those in our culture today. I already mentioned them. Our teams, our schools, our neighborhoods, our, you take your pick. You are my witnesses. Even if all the world is against you, even if all the world calls you a fool, even when the world thinks it's right and you could not be further from the truth, the Lord says, you are my witnesses. Do you get that? That this is who you are. It's not who you are going to be at some later time. It's who you are now in Christ. If you get that, if you can embrace that, the next step is to open your eyes. It's to open your eyes. Many of you know that for the past five years, uh, we've taken teams from St. Andrews up to New York City uh, to work with a sister church in the borough of Queens, a church called Grace Fellowship Church. We've really developed a a partnership with that church. And and when we first go into the city, some of us are a little numb to this now because we've been there a bunch, but when you first go into that city, and this is the case whenever you go into any major metropolitan city, so don't think Columbia. Um, Doesn't quite register the same way in downtown Columbia. Think New York, Chicago, think Hong Kong, think think big. Um, It's okay. Uh, We love our little city. When you first go into that city, for anyone who's ever gone there, it's almost overwhelming. You're on sensory just overload. As you look around trying to figure out where you are in this massive city, you're dwarfed by just the magnitude of the buildings, by the sheer height of it. And your vision, your vision is so obstructed. And really in an instant, you're made to feel very small. And, and the horizon of your life is literally right here because you're just back to face to the back of somebody's head walking through this city and, and, and the horizon is right in front of your face. And even if you could look beyond the people, all you would see is buildings, street by street, block by block, the horizon just one block at a time. But for about 30 bucks, this isn't an advertisement, by the way, but for, for about $30, uh, you can get on an elevator. And and that elevator will take you all the way to the top of a building called 30 Rockefeller Center. Um, And upon exiting that elevator, you can get onto an escalator. And and, and you ride that escalator up to the top and you come out into a glass cube. And then when you walk out of that glass cube, you open the doors. It's very cold and it's very windy. In an instant, your horizon is expanded beyond anything you could imagine. In an instant, your understanding of your place within that city, is just totally transformed. This is what begins to happen when we understand this verse, when we understand Acts 1.8. It's to have your eyes opened. It's to have your horizon extended. It's to, to go to all of Judea and Samaria is to certainly go to those who we would naturally gravitate towards, there's nothing wrong with that. Go to, go to Judea. Go to your friends. Go to your family. Go to the people that you know and you are safe with. But it's also to go to those who, who you would normally avoid. 
and who, quite frankly, might avoid you. It's to go to those who, who aren't like you. It's to go to the Samaritans. It's to go to those who would, who would welcome you and to those who would have nothing to do with you. It's to see beyond the limits of your own vision, your natural horizon, your limited scope, and to understand that the work of God in redeeming a people unto himself is not limited by any race, by any gender, by any city, by any fabrication that our mind might come up with to convince us that they couldn't come to know the Lord. It's to understand, it's to understand that there is no one who stands outside of the reach of the mighty hand and the outstretched arm of the Lord our God. That's what understanding Acts 1.8 means. That there's no one, not one, who is unreachable. And it's to embrace the reality that Christ is building his church. He's using his people to do it. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, we need to extend our horizons. We need to be willing to look out beyond ourselves. See beyond our doors. Look beyond our streets. Even our neighborhoods. We need to gaze out beyond the borders. Have a vision of hope that's manifested in reality. We need to walk as children of God. We need to speak as children of God. We need to live as children of God, as witnesses, as witnesses to Christ. A few years ago, Nike had an ad um, for LeBron James. Uh, He's a tremendous athlete, obviously, and they put him in this uh, ad in the middle of Cleveland. With a big Nike check over him, of course, because you got to get that in there. And, and it was him standing like this, um, very messianic in nature. And it said, we are all witnesses. Nike's right. We are. It's just, what are we witnessing to? What are we witnessing to? And, and just a second, the ushers are going to come forward, um, and we're going to give our tithes and our offerings. This is something we do all the time. Y'all can come on forward. Um, And when we do this, Mark has already mentioned that you have an opportunity each week to put this little card in there. To to, to put your name, to write your name on here and say, I I was here. And and this is not so that we get any sort of glory. Hey, Jim Bird was here again this week. That's not how that works. Um, This is for you to make a commitment. To put yourself in God's service. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've done for us. That you do redeem, that you do save, that you do call sinners unto yourself and give them life. You you call them from death to life. You've called us. You've called me. God, I can't do anything but say thank you in this moment for this inexpressible gift that you have given us. God, I pray that as your people, we we would commit ourselves unto your work that we would be witnesses to what you're doing. That yes, we would step across the street, that we would be willing to enter into into the dark places, enter into the needs that are right here in front of us. But God, don't let let that prevent us from being willing to step across this country. To look out, to see beyond the comfort, see beyond the normative. Help us to think big and dream big about what you will do. God, forgive our short-sightedness. 
Forgive our inability to see beyond ourselves and what we think is possible. God, I pray that you would take these tithes, take these offerings, that you would build your church with it, that you would strengthen your church through it. God, use us as your servants. Use us as your witnesses, not not just here, not just in New York or West Virginia or Chattanooga, but across this country, across this world. God, there's no limit to what you will do to redeem your people. You've proven that by sending your son. You've given everything that you might win your people. God, it's in in gratitude for that that we return to you what is already yours. God, take these things. Do your work with them. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I encourage you to turn to Psalm 67 in your Bibles. While you are turning there, hear these words from the book of Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And with that, you're hoping it's time to leave. But not quite. We are, however, on the home stretch. In the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, we're told that God spoke these words to Moses. He instructed him to give them to Aaron and his sons, Israel's priests, to pronounce blessing upon the people of God. And for well over 3,000 years now, these words have been spoken time and time again in the context of worship. In the Christian tradition, they are used most often at the conclusion of the service as a blessing, a good word from God for his people as they go out to serve and live. There is likely no other scripture passage that has been read publicly more times than this benediction. In Psalm 67, the writer chooses to begin with these same words in a slightly different order. However, the familiarity of this text would not have been lost on the Old Testament worshiper. In verse 1, we read these words. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. The psalmist even gives a liturgical pause for reflection by inserting the Selah, setting apart this text early on in the psalm. Any worshiper even remotely familiar with the previous Aaronic blessing is reminded of it in this opening verse. The words and imagery are unmistakable. The idea of asking for God's blessing permeates our culture and evangelical lingo, doesn't it? Consider these examples. Well, bless your heart. God bless you. You're such a blessing to me. Bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. And God bless America. What does it mean to ask for God's blessing upon a person, a church, a community, or a nation? And should we expect God to answer this prayer? If so, why? I suppose if we're honest about it, generally speaking, we're asking God to give us grace and prosperity. We want to be forgiven of our sin. We want the right balance of rain and sunshine so we'll have plenty to eat. We want financial blessing in order to maintain a certain lifestyle, and the list could go on and on. Certainly, these are not wrong things to ask God for. I don't suppose we would or should ask for the opposite of these. 
The issue is not so much whether or not we ask for God's blessing, but rather the motive behind the request. Notice the psalmist's motivation in verse 2. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the people praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. The psalmist is asking for the blessing of God's people, not for the people's sake, but for God's sake, for his glory. He wants God to show his people grace and favor so that the glorious gospel will go into every nation and people group. And in this, all the nations of the earth will see the justice of God and worship him. This idea of God's blessing his people, that they might be a blessing to the nations, is found all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 when God made his covenant with Abraham. You remember these words that God spoke? And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As those who understand the covenant of grace to be a thread throughout the scriptures, we don't believe this aspect of the covenant ended with the advent of Jesus Christ or that it is a promise only for ethnic Jews. Far from it. We believe this covenant finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. The vehicle for God's blessing, the nations of the earth, is right here in this room. Us. The church. And so the difficult question comes to us, why do we want the blessing of God in our lives? When we ask God to bless us at mealtime, when we reach out for the benediction at the conclusion of our worship, when we proudly exclaim, God bless America, what are we really asking for? I must confess that more often than not, it is because I want me and my family to have an easier time here on earth. I hope to prosper financially. I want to retain good health. I want others to think well of me. I desire to find significance in my work. And ultimately, I want to go to heaven and live forever, so I want God's grace in my life. In my heart of hearts, I wish I could say completely that I wanted God's grace and blessing in my life for his glory alone. But I'm not totally there yet. Do I want God to be glorified in and through me? Well, of course, I could get behind that. But to completely set aside self and cast all glory to God alone is a difficult thing to do. Think about what it would mean for us, though, if we approach the blessings of God for his glory. When we're focused upon God's blessing being for our benefit in this life, we may indeed be thankful for them and perhaps even praise God for them. But when the physical blessings seem to stop or go away, we are forced to go through hardship and we are left to wonder why God is no longer blessing What have we done to anger him? Why has he taken the good things of this life away from us? But if, on the other hand, we understand that all the blessings of God are for his glory alone, our perspective is quite different than the times of suffering and trial, for we know that those times are for his glory as well. If one moment we are healthy and vibrant and the next we're deathly ill, we can take comfort that God is glorifying himself in both of these circumstances. If one moment we have many assets in the market and the next they're all gone, 
What does it matter? They were his to do with what he wills in order to bring glory to himself. This attitude could be the only explanation for Job's response. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job understood that it wasn't about him. It was about God's glory. So we can boldly ask God in faith to build our churches, to prosper our communities and families, to bless our nation and leaders, but not for the blessings in and of themselves, rather that as our text states, through these blessings the gospel might flourish and the peoples of all the earth will fear and worship him as a result. The emphasis on the whole of scripture is exactly what we see here. God blesses his people that we may in turn be a blessing to the nations and glorify him. We continue reading in verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy? Really? Really? What do the nations have to be glad and joyful about? Have you seen the news lately? Have you read the historical record both in the Bible and in the history books? What could the world possibly be glad about? The nations can be glad because our creator has provided the way of redemption and reconciliation through his son, Jesus Christ. The nations can be glad because his saving power isn't limited to one people group, language, culture, or time period. It can be known by all peoples of the earth in all time. The nations can be glad because God is in control of all the affairs of men, bringing about his plan and exercising his glory in and through all circumstances in the world. And the nations can be glad because Jesus Christ is coming again to judge and rule the earth in perfect peace and equity. This is why the nations can be glad and sing for joy. This is the good news. This is what we, the church, are to be about. This, more than anything else, is what the world needs. For whether humans live for five years or 10 years or 20 years or 70 years on this earth, their greatest need is not found in more material comforts or good health, or even complete freedom from earthly tyranny. Our greatest need is to be reconciled to a just and holy creator. The greatest need of humanity is to be transferred from the kingdom of light into the kingdom, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. I believe that more often than not, our vision is too small, our perspective too limited, and our view too short-sighted. God is unfolding his story exactly as he wills it to be unfolded. He is sovereign over all and he is victorious in all things. And if you are resting in Christ alone for your eternal destiny, then you are the heroine of the story, the bride of Christ. And you have been called to help draw the story to its happy ever after conclusion. We're not sideline observers in this tale of love. No, we are right in the center of it, serving our bridegroom in making the nations glad. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. 
By any standard, we as a people and as a church are immensely blessed with every spiritual blessing from heaven and with more than enough physical wealth here on earth. It might be tempting to say, well, I don't know why God has blessed us so richly, but I'm sure thankful he has. I can tell you why God blesses his people, so that his way may be known on earth, his saving power among all nations. This is why God is blessing St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church with spiritual gifts, resources, skills, and the members. It is imperative that we as a church and within our families and among our friends keep our eye on the ball here. Has God called us to go across the world in global missions and across the country and across the street? By all means, he has. What a holy privilege is ours. As the Lord continues to entrust St. Andrews with every spiritual blessing, may he find us to be faithful stewards until he returns to claim us as his bride alongside our brothers and sisters from every tribe and nation around the globe. Let's pray. God, what a glorious calling is ours. I truly don't know why you've called us to join you in this wonderful endeavor of building your kingdom. This is a mystery far too great for us to understand how you can use weak vessels such as us. But you have, and you've chosen us to be part of this process. Give us a vision, Father, for your glorious gospel going across the street, going across the nation, and going across the world. Help us to be faithful stewards in this for many, many years to come, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.